what public health can really help do is help build that vision of a better world. I've been very heartened by the new frames around electoral justice, for example, that show again the necessity. It's not either or. It's not just that you vote or just that you organize. It's that you do both or just protest. It's that you do both with a vision for a better world. We have multiple pandemics going on. We have COVID, but we have racism. We have climate change as another crisis. And many of the solutions for something like coronavirus are very similar to the solutions for climate change. It requires political leadership. It requires people working together globally on these issues. It requires reliance on science over politics. So there are signs of hope, but there are signs of splintering. The journal was really perfectly right that we're not all in this together. In some ways, we are, but we're not. We share the burden unequally. We all have a burden, but we all have a responsibility to lift ourselves out of this. We can't do it alone. Hello and welcome to the November 2020 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. Why is there a need to reinvent public health and what should be the essential traits of a reinvented public health system? These are the questions I discuss in this podcast with the authors of the November issue of AJPH. Professor Nancy Krieger wrote that we had enough with the current public health. Professor Ross Brownson, with three colleagues, described the path forward for public health priorities now and five years ahead. And Professor Larry Gostin warns that global governance in the public health world is being reinvented at a time when the U.S. is severing its ties to World Health Organization and the United Nations. Hello, everybody. Introduce yourself so that uh, the listeners know by your voice who you are and can recognize you during the, the podcast. Nancy. My name is Nancy Krieger. I'm a professor of social epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I'm also American Cancer Society clinical research professor, and I am also the chair of the Spirit of 1848 Caucus of the American Public Health Association, which is concerned with issues of social justice and public health. Thank you, Nancy. Ross? Yes, hi, I'm Ross Brownson, and I am the Lipstein Distinguished Professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Thank you. Larry? Hi, uh, I'm Larry Gostin, Professor of Global Health Law at Georgetown University, the O'Neill Chair in Global Health Law, and the Director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center on Public Health and Human Rights. Thank you very much, all of you. So we're here to talk about the reimagining or reinventing public health. And this means that we are unsatisfied with some of what we see today, since we want to reinvent it or reimagine it. Nancy, your editorial starts with the word enough. You know, what do we have enough of, of this system and we need to change? Thank you very much, Alfredo, also for including me. And the enough in my article actually referred to what the title really says, which is COVID-19, structural racism, police brutality, climate change, and the time for health justice, democratic governance, and an equitable, sustainable future. And the enough is about the fragmentation of the systems that we have 
and the profound inequities that's baked into them. But when I was thinking about your question about what do we need to reinvent, what it also brought back to me, very much tied to the notion of the spirit of 1848 itself, is it's not so much reinventing as building on strong threads that are key to the history of public health. Public health as a discipline was born in a time of social ferment. It was born at a time of strong debate around abolition, around working class struggle for an eight-hour day and for the recognition of unions. And it was born out of a recognition that it was actually called public health for a reason. It was that which needed to be done by society, not individuals for their private hygiene. The first distinction between public health and private hygiene was actually made in the French Revolution, where private hygiene was seen about the individuals, what they did for themselves, but public hygiene was about what the state needed to provide from the standpoint of a state that was responsive to the needs of its citizens and put equity at the center. So I think that what's really important is that public health build on those very strong roots and very strong traditions. Public health, it's not about being partisan, it's about actually being democratic and supporting democratic governance. Thank you, Nancy. Ross, is this your diagnostic too? Yeah, we often think of social justice as one of the underpinnings of public health. But I think to really have progress in public health and having equal access to health and prevention, we have to have justice in all the pillars of society. So that's not only health and public health, that's racial justice, that's economic justice, as Nancy alluded, it's justice in the legal system, in the educational system. And I think public health practitioners are well aware of that, but they often leave some of the justice in other sectors to others to take care of. We have to think of public health progress as a systems issue, not just one in different sectors of society. Thanks, Ross. And you, Larry, what's your diagnostic? I often think that I believe in something called public or global health with justice, because you can have uh, public health or global health, and that is ever-increasing health outcomes so that people live longer, less child and maternal deaths, treatment of people with HIV, AIDS, malaria, and the like. We have made enormous progress on longevity and so many other indicators of a good life, including vast reductions in absolute poverty. The problem is that we don't have justice. That is, we don't have the equitable distribution of the goods of health. And Martin Luther King said, I thought beautifully, that you know, all inequity is unjust, but the greatest injustice is health injustice. And COVID-19 has really brought that to the fore. Thank you. I think there's a consensus here that the main aspect that we are unsatisfied with the current system is its injustice. And probably this is one of the most striking impact of COVID-19. It's how it has hit us very differently across different communities in, in this country and elsewhere. And we wrote it, first page of AJPH. We are not in this all together. Just to counter all this idea that uh, we were just as equal in front of the pandemic. Besides all the mis- assessments and wrong policies that have been accepted, the injustice was probably the dominant aspect. I want to ask you, Ross, in your paper with your colleague, 
what I liked was that you identify what we need to do in the next five years. And this is very concrete goal. And having a just public health system is, is a daunting challenge. What are the steps that will help us get there? Because I think the energy in the country and, and the enthusiasm in the youth is huge. And so we have an opportunity. So how do you see that, Ross? Yeah, it is a daunting thing to think about. And so there's so many different places it can go. And so if you think of this idea we were talking about of justice as a foundation, I'll point to three things that would help move us forward. And and it may be five years, it may be three years, it may be 10 years. So I think the timelines are hard to identify for certain. I think the first one and the fundamental one is leadership and political will. You really can't achieve much in our society without that. I think through COVID, we've seen glimmers of real hope at some state and local areas. We've seen that when leaders rely on the science, when they're held accountable, when they turn to public health for answers, that we can make progress and we see vast differences in the case positivity rate as we're going forward. And so I think that's fundamental in the in a political side. We know within that political will there has to be support for the infrastructure of public health. And so we've really never invested in public health. We've never had the political leadership to do that. In the mid to late 1970s, public health had about half of its support coming from the federal government. And now it's down around 15% of the support. During the economic meltdown in, in from 2008 to 2009, since then we've lost about 50,000 public health jobs. And we need to build that up. We need to work on that. The second bucket, we need to modernize our core functions. You know, our core functions are assessment, policy development, and assurance. All those are fundamental to public health. Just an example, under COVID, our surveillance systems, they're built for an epidemic of a decade or two ago. We're not relying on modern surveillance methods. We're not relying on uh, cell phones, on artificial intelligence, on other ways of tracking and, and getting ahead of the pandemic. We need to rely on that, and we need to invest in that kind of research on applied public health, not just on the biomedical. We tend to invest in vaccines and treatments, and we vastly underinvest in applied public health research. The third bucket, if you will, would be something around the skills for public health. You know, one of the hallmarks of this pandemic has been misinformation and miscommunication. The false information in social media travels three to five times more quickly than accurate information. And we're doing a pretty poor job at countering all of the false and misinformation. And so we've got to teach new skills about how to do that. We need to learn about how to counter this, especially on social media. We need to learn new policy skills. We segment audiences all the time for public health campaigns, but we don't segment policymakers on how to get our message across. Just an example, research shows that if you want a message to resonate with a more liberal legislator, you can rely on social determinants arguments. If you want to resonate more with a more conservative legislator, you want to resonate with cost and the the cost of disease and the value and the return on investment for prevention. So I think those are a few things that would help move us forward and at least get a start on that new vision for public health. This is Nancy. I'd like to chime in on the parts about public health infrastructure, which I really support the building of that. But I do want to flag in the case of COVID that we have two other issues going on. One is actually data suppression. It's not about we don't have enough data. It's that we're also not getting the data we need. For example, it has been 
stunning to see the manipulation and distortions of data on race ethnicity and the complete lack of data on socioeconomic position that could easily be connected to the, because they're part of the death certificate that are not being made available. So why the data are not there is problematic, and equally problematic is how the racial ethnic data are being portrayed. What public health can really help do is help build that vision of a better world. I've been very heartened by the new frames around electoral justice, for example, that show again the necessity. It's not either or. It's not just that you vote or just that you organize. It's that you do both or just protest. It's that you do both with a vision for a better world. The Green New Deal paints that in a certain way that brings out many visions of public health about what it means to have a thriving economy that is green, that is equitable, that creates jobs, that creates possibilities for abating and getting rid of the environmental injustice and the climate injustice that we have. The, the issue of data is really crucial since uh, without the data, we don't know where we are. And actually, we don't know where we are in the evolution of this pandemic. Is this also your perception, Larry? It is. But in terms of reimagining public health in the United States, we're going backwards. We're not going forward. And I'm thinking about the vast undermining and sidelining of our critical public health agencies like the US FDA, the CDC, the contradicting of science. I've worked with the CDC for so many years, decades now. I've never seen it so demoralized. I've never seen it sidelined and marginalized and criticized. At the same time, we're worried now about a safe and effective vaccine. Will the FDA actually do its job? Um, And will it do its job properly without political interference? It's remarkable. It's almost jaw-dropping that in the U.S., the career scientists at the FDA had to put out a statement saying they'll follow science. And in the midst of all of that, the United States is caught in a geopolitical power struggle with China that's undermining the World Health Organization. The United States announced its withdrawal from the World Health Organization. And so the very pillars of our public health infrastructure, the WHO, the CDC, the FDA, the unconscionable interference and undermining of science at the White House, public health is in a crisis at the moment. Make no mistake about it. intervention, Larry, brings me to another key aspect, because uh, this is a pandemic. So it's not something that every country deals with separately. It's a global issue. And so there's an issue of global governance. So where are we in terms of global governance? I think America is, is very, very quickly losing its influence around the world and our ability to lead on questions of public and global health. And I thought that our announcement of withdrawal from WHO would be uh, a bridge too far and we would never come back from it. But there are signs of hope, too, Alfredo. COVAX would be one, which is a WHO-Gavi Alliance coalition that's really trying to bring together the world so that there's equitable distribution of COVID-19 vaccine, which is going to be enormous because most of them are two-dose requirements, Uh, you need deep, cold storage, 
syringes, public health infrastructure around the world. So you might need 12 or 14 billion doses. And so we need to figure out a way to get all those to the poor people in the world, the rural people in the world, both in rich countries, the poor in the rich countries, and the poor of the poor in lower-income countries. And COVAX has done that. Notably, China, Russia, and the United States have not been part of COVAX. So there are signs of hope, but there are signs of splintering. The journal was really perfectly right that we're not all in this together. In some ways, we are, but we're not. We share the burden unequally. We all have a burden, but we all have a responsibility to lift ourselves out of this. We can't do it alone. If you look at the five countries that have performed worse in the world with COVID-19, the five, all five, have strong men, populist leaders. Absolutely. So what do you think, Ross, Nancy, please chime in about how can we do without uh, a global governance? I think about when you build a house, it can take you weeks, months, sometimes even years, and to tear a house down, it takes a few hours. And we do have many of our institutional pillars on the global stage torn down right now. So I think there's going to be kind of a slow rebuilding process. We're all educators. I have a pretty high confidence that our students can do a better job at this than many of the generation they're following. And I think we have to put a lot of the tools in their hands both to work in the U.S. and in many disadvantaged communities as well as globally. And I think the other important thing is that we have multiple pandemics going on. We have the, the COVID, but we have racism. We have climate change is, is another crisis. And many of the solutions for something like coronavirus are very similar to the solutions for climate change. It requires political leadership. It requires people working together globally on these issues. It requires reliance on science over politics. We have to find the, the sweet spot for countries, places in the world that will counter this sort of ultranationalism and, and I think slowly rebuild all the pillars that will support better public health going forward. It's really important to understand it's not either local or global. We live all levels simultaneously. I am simultaneously someone who is here in Massachusetts, respecting the fact that I'm on land, that it's indigenous and respectful of indigenous wisdoms. But I'm also at the same time a member of a country. I'm also at the same time a member of the world. And the way the pandemic works, just as with climate change, but on different timescales, is that it involves local as well up to global action. Both are necessary. Pandemic is a global affair, but community spread is a local matter that has to be dealt with by people in local communities, but with federal support or government support, depending how that's framed, with the resources to be able to deal with it and the backup for the policies in the case of COVID. It showed how quickly governments can act decisively with regard to even how the economy is doing, what is allowed and what is not allowed. It has the power to do so. So seeing the power of that governments can act and can act for the public good in ways that protect health and also enable economies to then recoup is really something that COVID has shown. And I think that needs to be understood at all levels, from local to global, and what their interconnections are and not one or the other. Thank you. I would like you to have a short reaction to what I think is the summary of this session is that our current system has a problem of injustice and it's built on this injustice basis and foundation and cannot be solid. 
our priority and all the domains that you've been discussing is to refound public health, to create foundations that are just and build a solid system over it. Can you just quickly tell me if you agree or disagree? Agree. Yes, I agree too. <laughs> Where we get into trouble is when we think about ourselves and our selfishness, a selfishness as individuals or a selfishness as a country. We need to ask what obligations and responsibilities do I have to my, as Nancy said, my community, my nation, my world, to my neighbor to make sure that we're all doing well. COVID has really brought that out to me. And we need to, you know, recapture the, the imagination of the common public good. And that's the bottom line for me. I agree with that. And I would just add, thinking globally, locally, all the way across that continuum, and also thinking about the world we're leaving for our children, the generations that come, there's urgency in a lot of the issues we talked about today. And we need to get busy on these now if they're gonna have a, a, a fair and just world for the next generations. felt, as I did, the same tension in my three interviewees. On the one hand, the excitement of perceiving the opportunities for public health that the COVID-19 crisis has revealed. And on the other hand, the awareness of facing challenges of historical dimension. The roots of the public health we know go back two centuries. The system was built on inequitable foundations, and despite decades of reforms for improvement, public health remains today fragile because its benefits are not shared equally by all. Public health is still not the common good that it ought to be. The COVID-19 pandemic has thrived on the lack of social, economic, health and environmental equity in our country. Although we cannot expect a perfect and infiable public health system, we can expect the burden to be equally distributed at the local and at the global levels. In reinventing public health, our priority must be to found it on fair premises. I'm grateful to all the members of the panel for their time and willingness to share their ideas. I also thank Emily D'Agostino and Michael Costanza for comments and edits on an earlier version of the podcast. Francis Jacob plays the guitar on the paraphrase of a famous song which sounds relevant to our quest about what's going on in public health. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe to it on your usual podcast app. A full transcript of the podcast is available on our website for persons with hearing disabilities. That's it. Thank you for listening.